With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 10, Episode 20. And the episode was titled Another Perspective. This was part one of my interview and or more of a discussion with listener Chris Doland. And our discussion obviously generated a whole lot of more discussion on the fan page. The overall sentiment was that most people seemed to really enjoy the discussion. A few people didn't like that particular format on the main episode, which I'll discuss in a little bit after we do a quick break. But uh, as of right now, we are recording. I'm recording live from Houston, Texas. I'm here working boots on the ground on the case right now, trying to track down some some people to interview. One of my stops is going to be, of course, Juan Mandiola. We've got a bunch of questions that you all submitted to me that you want me to ask him. So hopefully I'm going to try to, he's my next stop right after this. And then I have a few other witnesses that I'm, I'm looking to track down while I'm here. I'm joined uh, remotely back in Michigan by Mr. Mike Bussing in his home studio. Hey, guys. And, of course, Mr. Zach Weaver in his home studio. Hey, guys. And just a fair warning, my kids are here, so who knows what's going to happen during this. Kids, dogs, you never know. And I'm across the street from an airport, so this could go really well. (laughs) Uh, So take a quick break, and we'll get right into your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, real quick before we get into your questions, I do want to address there was a few discussions on the fan page or a few people that thought this particular format would have been better served on a follow-up episode. Um, and I, I just want to address, you know, there's a couple things. I said it in the episode. Number one, these trips where I'm at now require us to work ahead and we gotta we've gotta move a lot of things around in order to be able to do this. So I was, you know, it was convenient that this came up when it did. But the other thing is Remember the, the, the purpose of these main episodes is to track, you know, each week I investigate. I'm working in a certain element of my investigation. I, I turn that into a narrative form, put it out in the podcast for you all to absorb it and then give me feedback on it. And then that's how we keep moving forward and, and finding the things that may have been missed in the past. And in this step, uh, that, that conversation with Chris is, in, was, is and was an integral part of my investigative process. And, it's important for me to get other perspectives, especially in a case like this, where you have, you know, there, there's just so much 
ambiguity here and we're dealing with all these witness statements and all these different things that we're trying to line up and there's always it's always necessary for anyone to take us in and that's what you know when people are unwilling to hear other arguments that's how you end up in the position that Jennifer ended up in uh potentially you know, whether she's innocent or guilty she was still the, the case was still manipulated against her is people get blinders on so for me it was a necessary step to step back and hear someone else with a different perspective to make sure that I'm not operating with blinders on, to make sure that I haven't missed anything. And I do want you to know that in the second half of this discussion, uh, we really, we, we narrow things down. You know, we start with he's here and I'm here and we start breaking down, comparing our two kind of methods and our two perspectives on the case. And then we end up actually coming to some pretty solid Maybe conclusions isn't the right word for it, but we definitely come to a lot more clarity on the, on the case because of this process. It was very useful for me. It was very insightful for me. Chris did, did a great job and I'm really appreciative for him volunteering to, to come on and do that. And hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And, and if you like the first one, I think you're definitely going to like the second one because, you know, we get much deeper into the weeds in the, in the second episode. And on that note, too, you know, there's some of the different perspective things that we're dealing with is, and I think like, like Chris had mentioned, there is, uh, you know, there's just, he, you know, he says there, there's a lack of evidence in this case. And a lot of people are getting frustrated because like we don't have any evidence, but I see it the other way. I said, we have a ton of evidence. We have so much work for us to do. Like, you know, like, like what are we wanting? Is it, do we want like some, some DNA evidence showing us who did it? Well, if that was the case, then our services wouldn't be necessary. It, historically, every case that we've worked on, uh, particularly cases that have been brought to us by like the Innocence Project, are because they're cases that require an in-depth investigative process. And this case is exactly that. There is not a clear path. If there was a clear path, we wouldn't be needed. But in this case, like we had like like all these statements are evidence, and in these witness in these uh, statement analysis are important and. Filtering out fact from fiction within each one of these statements uh, is a, is a critically important part of this process, and and I think that we are as the truth and justice audience as a, as a whole as a group are like the perfect group of people to take this on because we do have the ability to focus on each and every element of this to have open open discussions back and forth and sort through the difference between the fact and the fiction to come up with. A narrative and, and some of the people that I want to interview when I'm here in Houston today and I'm hoping to connect with either today or tomorrow, uh, I think, I think can, can give us the clarity that we're all hoping for. And, and I guess I'll, I'll tell you while, while I'm here, uh, cause you guys will hear this after the fact. I, I try not to clue people in ahead of time as far as like the witnesses I'm looking for. Cause a lot of people just don't want to talk to, you know, a podcast or a reporter or anybody like that. So. But some, one of the main reasons I came here, were, one was to talk to Juan Mendiola. I have to have that conversation. And as I mentioned, like there's, I cannot, the, the phone numbers I have for him don't work. The emails I have for him don't work. And so the only way I can talk to him is to go to his door in person. Uh, and it seems like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big kind of pain to have to get on a plane and fly all the way down here to do that. But it's necessary because we have some follow up questions now. But also some big ones I'm looking for are, are Nina and Cena Sullivan. Uh, it was is the it was the main purpose for my trip. That's the, the people that I'm really hoping to connect with, because what I see in looking through the case file is 
these are two people that are around the same age as, as youngster Jennifer Eva. They're in that kind of same age range, you know, late teens, early twenties. And they knew youngster. They kind of knew the happenings of what was going around there. Police never followed up with him. They just gave their statement about what was discussed that day. But I really feel like there would be more discussions within that group, within that age group going around the apartment complex after the fact. And I feel, and I, I, I feel like I'm hoping that, that Nina and Cena will be able to maybe enlighten me on some of those discussions. And if not, point me in the direction of other people that we are not in the police file that maybe weren't interviewed, but they know, you know, so for example, you know, we see when Detective Allen goes back to the apartment complex the night of the murder and he talks to Jennifer and she's pointing him out. She's pointing out youngster and KD uh, to him. And he says he's with a group of guys and then they end up leaving before they get there. But there's still this group of guys there. Well, who's the group of guys? And what are the odds that that if youngster and KD were hanging out with this group of guys, these unknown men? on the night that the murder happened, that they weren't discussing with them what actually happened that day. In trips like this, sometimes they, you know, Mike and I have been on many. Sometimes we come down and we, and we nail it and we, and we get all the interviews and all the information we're looking for. And, and I know I'm thinking of one in particular. We've definitely had times where we went all the way down to Dallas and knocked on a hundred doors and didn't get a single interview and flew home with our tail between our legs. Yep. So hopefully it's not the, it's not the latter. Um, I'm really at the early stages of this trip right now, but, uh, uh, fingers crossed. That's what we're doing as far as the conversation with Chris. It was important for me. It really reinforced some of the ideas I had and made me think differently about some other ones. And hopefully it did the same with you. But the important thing, I think, for all of us on both sides of this discussion, whether you think Jen's innocent, you think Jen's guilty, or you're somewhere in between, is to have an open mind. We, we run into problems. We become the corrupt police when we get set into our viewpoint that I've already made up my mind and nothing's going to change my mind. And I'm only looking for the, at the evidence from the perspective of re- reinforcing an idea that I already have. And again, that is why the discussion with Chris is so important because that's my, that's my gut check, right? That's my opportunity to look at somebody who doesn't feel as strongly about Jennifer's innocence as I do and hear them out with an open mind say, okay, well, why don't you, what am I missing? Why do you feel differently than me? And again, the conversation was very, was very productive for me. And I think it was for Chris too. I think that he's actually messaged. We've, we've talked a little bit since then. And it was, it was a good, good process to go through. I'm looking forward to you guys hearing the next half of that interview on Sunday. Hey, one last uh, housekeeping thing. Uh, I think we need to talk about the Sandy Melgar oral arguments that are happening right now as we record. Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me, Zach. I did post this on the fan page uh, five minutes ago, but it'll be for you guys listening to this. It will have been a few days ago. But so Sandy Melgar, our season six case, uh, she remember she filed the appeal. The Seacrest filed the appeal. That's kind of when we ended our season. And the main argument in the appeal filed, filed by the Seacrest was that there was insufficient evidence to convict Sandy Melgar, which is pretty it's a it's, it's a big burden. For an appeal. I mean, essentially you're saying it's not because of new evidence. It's not because of, I don't know, some, some very obvious constitutional violation. He's he literally is arguing the jury got it wrong with the evidence that was presented at trial. There was not sufficient evidence to warrant a guilty, a guilty verdict. We all feel very confident about it. I think the way it was written, we covered it back in season six, the way the appeal was written. But then, you know, there's always that, that feeling of, well, 
yeah, but the way the court system works, I mean, that's a pretty, it's a pretty tall order to convince a panel of judges that a jury just absolutely got it wrong because there wasn't sufficient evidence. So a very small percentage of these cases get oral arguments. And so we had a small victory. It was, a, I think it was about a month ago, Liz Rose posted that the, the CCA wanted to hear oral arguments. So typically, I don't remember the percentage, but it's, it's, you know, I don't know, one in 10, one in a hundred. It's, it, it's not very many. Uh, where this happens, typically they'll read the brief that was written by the, def- the the appellant, and then they'll read the brief, the counter that was written by the state, and then they'll make their decision based on what was written. But in this case, the Court of Criminal Appeals felt that there was a strong enough case there that they wanted to hear oral arguments. So that that in and of itself was was a small victory. And this is all outside of the work that Kathleen Zellner's doing on the case. She's working on post-conviction stuff like like writ actual innocence DNA testing, which is a step after the direct appeals. So this is outside of that. Uh, th- this is still the original appeal. And so it's it's happening right now. And unfortunately, with our timing, we had to record this episode right while it's straight. We were watching a little bit of it, the opening statements, right before we started recording today. Um, but anyway, if you want to see how that went, it is it was live streamed on YouTube. But it's also you can go back and watch it. And so if you want to do that, if you go to uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals YouTube channel and it'll list all the cases and then you'll be able to find go back to Wednesday and you'll be able to find the the title is PD 024320 Sandra Jean Melgar versus the state of Texas. And so if you go back and you can you can actually watch the YouTube video of those oral arguments. Uh, and then uh, I believe they said that uh, Liz told me yesterday that uh, we should expect a decision from the CCA uh, in one anytime from one to seven months from now after they hear the oral arguments. So uh, it's, a, it's a win that we even have the oral arguments. Uh, hopefully that goes well. And uh, you can all watch that on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals YouTube channel. All right, guys, let's get into these questions. To start things off, we've got several questions about Jen's fingerprints on the patio door. We'll start with Emily. I tried to find pictures of Jennifer's prints on the door, but couldn't. Can you talk about how they were oriented? Were they on the outside or inside? Were they near the door handle? Which hand of hers were they? There, there's a couple of schools of thought on the prints. There are several people that just don't believe those are Jennifer's fingerprints. For me, I think they likely are. That seems like like we're just getting too far into conspiracy theory at this point. But the, But what you just pointed out is the reason why some people call the fingerprints into question and with good reason. And, and that is because we don't have fingerprints. We don't have photos of them, which is very, very odd. It is not, I mean, a, a typical procedure for when, from, in my experience, when you see uh, fingerprints collected, you know, they'll dust for the prints. If they, if they find an area where they, you know, the dusting seems to have, have identified some prints, they'll take pictures of it. Usually they'll put like a scale next to it take pictures of that, and then they'll pull a tape lift from the dusting. So um, that's how the process works when they're looking for prints is they'll use, a, there's different types of dusts and they'll, they'll, they'll dust over an area and then the oils left behind from your fingerprints will, the, the dust will attach to that. There's they, the, the fingerprint collector can physically see the, the prints there. That's how they know to put the tape in a particular place and lift them and put them on a card for later analysis. So for some reason, we have no photos of these prints. 
And that's an issue. Of course, we already talked about Jim Schraub and the issues he had and the, the HPD fingerprint lab that was, uh, that was, is involved in some, some shady practices within the fingerprint lab as far as hiding the fact when they've made identifications from prints, if it's going to hurt the state's case. Uh, we've, there was, there was multiple occasions where it was proven that that had happened. So that's an issue. And again, the fact that there was no, Photos taken of it. And then there's also some weird, which I haven't, I haven't talked about it a lot because it, it's very difficult. It, it's not very clear in the case file exactly how this went down, but it appears that Shroud wasn't given those prints to identify until like days before the trial in September of 97, which was also weird. They weren't, they weren't sent to the lab with the original fingerprints. So there's, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, of conspiracy theories that could be out there. And I don't say that, you know, to demean anyone that by calling them conspiracy theories, but they're literally theories that there could have been a conspiracy is, you know, why, why didn't the fingerprint lab look at those prints at the same time that they looked at the prints that were found on the wall near, uh, uh, near Catalina's body or, or from the drawer uh, where the knife was found uh, wedged into the drawer. Why were, why did they wait until the very last minute? And then, and then some might say after they already had Jennifer's own fingerprints, then why do they wait until all this time later to send them to the lab? And then why were there no pictures taken of it at, at the scene? Like we have photos of the other prints that were taken, right? So we have pictures of the prints from the door. We have pictures of the prints from the wall. We have pictures of the print, uh, the possible print from the, the drawer. No pictures of the print on the glass. So just to make sure it's out there and everybody's on the same page with this. Uh, so the, the thought there is, if you were to believe there was some grand conspiracy, would be that perhaps, you know, they pulled Jennifer's prints. All that, you know, all it would take is to sit down and give her a cup of coffee while you're having a chat with her and then pulling her print off of a drinking glass and then submit it to the lab, you know, days before the trial and just say that it came from somewhere else. I, again, I, I don't, I, I don't think that's, it's out of the question, but it's just, it's a little too far for me to, to believe. Um, but yeah, so that's, we, we definitely did. You, you didn't miss it. There are no, uh, pictures of that print. The way it was described at trial was that it was on the outside of the glass of the patio door near the handle. And I think it was like three fingers, like index, middle and ring finger, I believe, uh, that were on the glass there as though somebody, you know, put their hand against the glass, but, but weirdly, and they're from her left hand. And, and so if you're looking, so if they're facing the open doorway, the glass would be on the left and it would be her left hand that would, would have touched it. But the way that they describing it to me as being oriented wouldn't be a way that someone would touch the glass if they were opening the door. You know, they would be like if they were maybe leaning in, looking in the door and their hand was just against the glass to support them as they peeked in, as opposed to if somebody like grabbed the handle and slid the door open. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So it, the prints were documented to be on the glass, not on the frame or not on the handle or anything like that. Right. My understanding is that they were found on the glass. Danette says, Bob said Jen's prints on the back patio door are not problematic for him, but they definitely are for me. More than one witness stated they didn't see anyone other than Keith go over the fence and in through the patio door. Two witnesses, neither included in the four from Eva's apartment, stated Jen did enter the apartment through the front door. Jen, in her interview with CWD, says she never jumped the fence and went in through the back door. In fact, I believe she says that twice in the interview. So if she only entered the apartment from the front door, how did her prints end up on the back door? Well, there's a couple things here. First thing I'll address is the Crime Watch Daily interview. And as I've said a hundred times, personally, I can't take anything out of that interview because of the way it was edited and cut together. Uh, if memory serves the particular part when Jen, you know, because people say, well, Jen says she was never in the apartment. But if you watch the Crime Watch Daily interview, what Jen actually says, if my memory's serving me correctly, what Jen actually says is no. So you have the interviewer saying, so you were never in the apartment. And then cut to Jennifer, no. Well, that could have been like it, the way the editing was put together. There's just no way to know what Jen actually said. It wasn't like there was a camera on her and we got to hear her tell her story. So I, I don't know that we can take anything from that. As far as, you know, the, the people that, you know, you had Keith and Pam Wiley both say that Jennifer never jumped the fence. But the reality is, and if you guys have, if you're on the Facebook fan group, I actually did a live stream yesterday. So go back to Tuesday on the post and you'll see I did two live streams from the apartment complex to give everybody a better idea of the layout and where everything is located. And the fact is that for Pam to say that Jennifer, if you look at Pam's statement where she was at, so she's standing in front of the patio with Keith, tells Keith to jump the fence and, and go investigate and see what's going on. And then Pam goes and waits at the front door for Keith to unlock the front door. So if Pam's at the front door, she literally cannot, she has zero view. If she gets halfway to the front door, she has zero view of that patio. And Keith is inside focused on moving the pot and unlocking the door. So in the moments when Keith's moving the, 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 the pot and he's unlocking the door and Pam is just outside of that just outside of the door, neither one of them had any view whatsoever of that patio. So for them to say, there's definitely nobody at the patio, it's just, it, it's it's disingenuous. They might not have seen anybody, but neither of them had a view of the patio at that point. So there's just no way that, like, th- those those aren't, we, we can't factor those in and be like, oh, well, they said she was never on the patio, so she must not have been. Neither they both said she wasn't the patio when they couldn't see if anyone was on the patio. You know what that that live video you did really helped me a lot. To be honest, I don't know the the listeners really need to go try to find it and watch it because it is problematic to say that no one jumped that fence. You know, I mean, they have witnesses that say no one jumped that fence, but from that video you made, I mean, you can clearly see that you lose that patio very quickly when you're going towards that apartment. Like, it's only a few steps down past the stairs before you lose the patio view completely. 
Like you don't have to be all the way to that door. Right. In the, uh, in the second video, there's a part one and a part two. I did that. I, so I stood at the foot of the steps and showed the view of the patio and started walking towards Catalina's door. And like Zach said, you get, you know, two steps, you're, you're still three, four steps away from the door and already you've lost the patio. You can't see it. Then we get into a little bit in my discussion with Chris in the second part of the, in the interview, in the episode that's coming this Sunday, the fact that there's, there's something else that we, so Keith says he was in the apartment after Pam. Well, that's another thing. Pam leaves at some point, right? So Pam goes to make sure somebody called 911. So then it's only Keith there. Pam's not even there outside. But Keith says during that time, he was going through the, the apartment looking for a phone. Well, and, and this is in both of theirs in Pam and Keith's statements. When they saw Jennifer go in the front door, they, they, they said they saw her walk in. They told her to get out of there. They shoot her out. Then Pam covers Catalina's body up. Then Pam leaves and Keith is looking for the phone, right? So this is after Jen had been inside and they kicked her out that Pam leaves and Keith is looking for the phone. Jen says in her statement that when she jumped the fence and was going in there, that she doesn't know where where Keith was, but he was looking for the phone. Or she says she doesn't know where the maintenance man, but he was looking for the phone. So they have to ask ourselves, how does Jen know that Keith was looking for the phone? So I think it's, it's it, the reason I say it doesn't bother me. I'm not saying that it's that it exonerates her or that it incriminates her, but I'm saying it doesn't bother me because one possibility is that she, when after they kicked her out of the front door, that she went around and she jumped the fence to try to snoop and look in there. The way the handprint was supposedly uh, oriented on the door would be like if someone was had their hand on the door and was just like peeking in and and she sees or knows or hears that Keith is looking for a phone. The, but we have to get past the fact that we, we have to, we have to factor in the fact that Jennifer in her statement knew that Keith was looking for a phone and she couldn't have known that unless she had eyes and ears in the apartment. And so either she would have had to gone back in the front door again or she was outside. She hopped the fence and was peeking in the patio. So this is a little off topic, but we're kind of talking about it. Now that you've seen that fence firsthand, how easily do you think you could hop over that fence? Maybe not you, but just a person could hop over that fence. Because now that I think you see it in firsthand, I don't know how easy it would be. I mean, it seems four foot's kind of high. I mean, I, I'm i 6'2". I could probably do it fairly easy. But if someone's much smaller, it doesn't seem like it'd be that easy, especially if there's nothing to step on to get over it. Yeah. And you know what? And I've actually seen it before because I was at the apartment complex the first time I came a few months ago. But as far as like getting over it easy, I don't, I definitely don't think it would be easy. Four foot. So, you know, I'm, I'm just a little shorter than you. Know, I'm six foot one. Jennifer was something like five, two. I got to go back and look at the, the files, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it certainly wouldn't be, you know, super easy to hop over. You'd have to basically put your hands on the fence. And then kick one, you know, leg or foot up onto it and prop yourself over and hop over, which would make sense for the cut that we see on her hand too. On the, it's on the palm of her hand. If someone had, you know, had used that their, that hand to prop on the top of the pickets of that fence, it certainly wouldn't have been easy. Uh, and now that I'm having a discussion, I either I need to go back and review that video and see if I caught it, uh, or I need to go back again today because something that just occurred. You mentioned having something to jump over or stand on. And she mentions in her statement that there was a metal pipe that she she was able to stand on when she jumped over. And I know in the video that I walked back around 
yesterday that I made where like the air conditioner was, where the patio meets the apartment. And that would have to be where that pipe was. I'm curious if there actually is a pipe there. I just feel like after seeing it on the video, I feel like you really, someone that size would have had to have something to step on. And I know you were kind of trying to look through your video to find that, to see if that pipe was there. But I, I just really feel like after seeing it in the video, not just the photos, that I feel like it's pretty, it's higher than I really imagined it to be. I think another another factor in it is the shrubbery around the the patio. So now there are these tall shrubs that are the way they're trimmed to they're like a foot away from the patio. Uh, they're trimmed down and they're and they're up higher, almost as high as the patio, the tops of these bushes. But back then there was much more dense bushes that were closest closer to the fence and lower. So I, I think another factor we have to consider is that someone could you know, especially someone who didn't weigh a whole lot, could literally step on one of those, you know, the 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 V, the the split of one of those bushes and use that as a step stool to get over. All right, Sarah says, do we know for sure that the patio door was open, meaning not locked? I find it odd if Catalina was scared that she would leave any door unlocked unless she's going in or out. I've lived in an apartment as a single woman and always keep my doors locked unless I was going in or out. And I wasn't scared, just cautious. Even my patio door, which was on the second floor. Yeah, I mean, there was, I think what she did is she had the screen door locked. From what we see from the crime scene photos, it appears that the screen door itself was locked. As you can see where a tool was used to pry that open. So it wasn't just slid open. And that's why it was pulled off the frame and not just slid open. So, you know, you think if you're trying to get some fresh air in and you open your sliding glass door and shut the screen, I mean, that's the most, you know, it may give you a false sense of security that, well, I got the screen door locked, even though somebody could literally just walk right through the screen door. But that's what I think it was. I think that the sliding glass door was open. There's no signs of forced entry on the sliding glass door. She's probably getting some fresh air in, and she had locked the screen door, and that was just too easy to break into. Sue says, do you think Jen could have gone out through the patio door when one of the managers told her to leave the scene? She then could have stayed in that doorway holding onto the frame and trying to keep on looking in to see what was going on in the room, as most kids would. Being a, quote, sticky beak, as we would say in Australia. I, I mean, that's possible. I, I'd have to go back and review Keith and uh, Pam's statements about when you know they saw her in there and told her to leave, and she left. If they specified that they saw her leave out the front door, you know, maybe. I mean, I don't think we have evidence to support that, but I don't know if we can rule it out that that she might have just went out the patio and then was was uh, peeking back in that way. Josh says, would you have taken this case if you knew you weren't going to have access to Jennifer? I feel like she could clarify so many things that we keep going around and around about. While I have really enjoyed this season, it seems like you have less access to the accused, the family, and the victim's family than in most every season before. To be 100% honest, no, I wouldn't have taken the case. Uh, if you know, I, it's, it's typically one of my rules that I have to have access to the convicted person. Because that's who we're, you know, we're, we're trying to help them and, and trying to solve the case. So no, had I known right up front, and this was all just timing, right? It just happened to be that like within weeks of, of me deciding to take the case after it was submitted to us that she happened to get the, the Justin bonus, her attorney, you know, from New York happened to offer to take the case on pro bono. So all that, you know, and then I still assumed that I'd be able to, cause I was, I did get to talk to Jennifer. I didn't know until we were, you know, starting the season that she couldn't talk about the case. So no, had I known that, no, I probably wouldn't have taken the case. 
that being said, I'm glad we did. And, and while I said, I, I know there's a sentiment out there by some that are frustrated by the case that they feel like there's just, we're spinning our wheels. I just don't feel that way. I guess, I mean, I, and, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that people's different people's minds work differently. Like to me, I see this case as the ultimate puzzle that's solvable. That we just, we got to keep digging through all this information and, and, and that we can solve this case. And it's a puzzle that I just, I, I can't let go of. And so I'm glad we took it. Possibly the fact that we don't have Jennifer access to Jennifer right now could be a blessing in disguise too, because, you know, there are, you know, we don't know if Jennifer, you know, we don't know if Jennifer would tell us the truth. You know, there, there there's, you know, people assume that, you know, if someone is lying about something that they must be guilty uh, or why would they be lying? But the fact is that, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of particularly wrongfully convicted people, you know, at age for an example, got hung up because they told a lie. And then they, especially when they're young and then they get, they get, they get locked into that story. They don't know how to get out of it. You know, if I've told the police this and my family this and, and uh, you know, for whatever reason and, and uh, an attorney this, like I can't come off of that now or I'm going to look more like a liar. You know, someone, someone telling a lie doesn't necessarily make them guilty, but I don't know what Jennifer would have told me. I feel like, you know, my conversations I've had with her, she was very open and honest with me. Uh, about the things that we talked about, but I think that it's not a terrible thing that we don't have that we don't have that added narrative of 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 her saying what happened, uh, and then and then and then potentially allowing that to bias anything that we're looking into. I think that it's a good thing that we're just we're only looking at what's in the case file, the the documents, and the evidence that we are continuing to collect without having that other narrative. Uh, as far as access to the family and victims' families, I mean, that's not just not true. I mean, the victims' family, we almost never have access to. We have great access. We have, you know, I got a full interview with Juan that was on her only family, uh, that was, that we've already aired most of on, um, in the, in previous episodes. Uh, and he was friendly with me. I'm hoping that today when I go talk to him, that he'll talk to me again. I mean, we had a nice interaction the first time. So I have no reason to believe that he, won't talk to me again if I can catch him at, catch him at home again. Uh, but having access to the victim's family is a rarity. We very rarely have that. The last time we had that would have been season two, Ed's case with uh, Johnny Pryor, who on, on a number of occasions uh, spoke to me about the case and about Elnora. Um, but typically we just don't have that. And then as far as, uh, uh, access to the family. I definitely have access to Jennifer's family. I just, I don't, I haven't had any questions I need to ask them. You know, I talk to them occasionally, you know, Jackie texts me a couple weeks. She'll, she'll occasionally message me to let me know like, Hey, just want to let you know we're listening. We appreciate the work you're doing. I'm learning so much about the case, you know, and so it's all been, uh, been good conversation, but I could, I, I have access to both of her sisters and her mom I, at any time I could reach out to them and they, and they've been very helpful whenever I need them. I just don't ha- haven't had a reason to, you know. I don't think that it's uh, produ- even if it's something that I believe it's not productive for us moving the case forward. For me to be like, well, I talked to I talked to Jen's mom and she says she's innocent. Well, innocent or guilty, obviously she would, you know, that's what she's going to say. It's not going to be meaningful to many other people. But yeah, we have that access there if if we need it. Lisa says, can you please explain how Youngster and or KD were supposed to see anything from the window at that angle? I'm still confused about this one. Well, there's two windows upstairs, right? So you have the the sliding glass door directly above Catalina's that goes out onto their patio, which is above hers. So 
you know, you, you can see out there, you can see kind of out into the alleyway, but then there's also the bedroom window. Uh, if you're facing the apartment to the left of that, that gives you, you know, steps you out a little bit where you get a better view of what's going on there. And from that one, that window, I think you could, you, you have a pretty good, you have actually a very good view of basically the entire alley from that other window. And the other possibility is anything they might see from there. They could have been out on the patio, just like looking out over the, over the patio too. So. Um, there's a lot of things we discussed this come in the episode coming up kind of in depth with Chris, but the, uh, the fact that youngster seems to have seen the interaction with KD or with, uh, Red Rock and Housen and not in a way that, you know, it, it, you know, in the statement analysis, it's not like a manufactured thing like, oh, and then Red Rock and Housen came up. He's like, oh, I saw her. He describes, you know, the one guy on the bicycle who was wearing this shirt and doing this and another guy that was this. And I know him that he's. He's a dope fiend. There's something wrong with his lip. You know, he's, he's being very detailed in describing these two characters that he doesn't really know. Uh, and, and, but we know from Jennifer and Red Rock and Housen's statement, uh, statements that, that this interaction happened and that, that, that youngster saw it. And we also know from all their statements that youngster wasn't outside at that time. He was nowhere around the area. And so the only way he could have seen that would have been through a window or from the patio. Matthew says, where did Jen go after the murder? Multiple witnesses, including Cena and Ruby Sullivan, say that she appeared from another direction well after police and EMTs arrived at the scene. Eva claims she had blood on her shirt and went to change it. Jen is not in the crime scene footage, and her sister watched the whole video and says she didn't see Jennifer. But we have reason to believe she was not in Eva's apartment, nor was she with Eva. Do we know if anyone was at Jennifer's mother's apartment when the murder occurred? Could she have gone there? Where was she? Yeah, so this is something interesting that I haven't really dug into yet. And, it's, and I've been waiting to because, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to find um, Ruby, Nina, and Cena here in Houston while I'm here this week. Because, you know, we, again, we haven't touched on it. But, yeah, they both, all three of them say at some point after all this stuff is going on, they see Jennifer uh, come around the corner. Uh, one thing is I, she wouldn't have been coming from her mom's apartment. Uh, because the, the direction they say they see her coming from would have been towards the front of the complex from the way I read it and understand the statements that she came from, uh, the front of the complex, like from like the direction of like Janet Dorsey's apartment and her, her mom's apartment would have been in the back of the complex. You know, 135 is like on the other side of the pool, all the way in the back of the complex. So she would have like literally walked right past, uh, Nina and Cena like through the parking lot to get there from her mom's apartment. Uh, as far as changing, I, I'll have to go back and see which one of Eva's statements she says she went to her mom's to change clothes or trial testimony. Cause you know, she changed her story so many times because at some point I think she's, she's changed like in, in Eva's apartment. I just, I, I definitely don't think she went to her mom. She went the other way. And, I, and we actually even see that if I remember correctly, I don't remember where it was, but it's, it, it might have been in Eva's statements or a trial testimony, but the suggestion was made that maybe Jennifer went to Janet Dorsey's house to change clothes because they, you know, they referred to her as her second mother. I don't remember which, whose testimony that was in, but that was something the police were like, well, maybe she went there to change. But the reality is Jennifer says she changed. She said she changed in Eva's apartment and she, she said she was wearing a white shirt. I think she said she was, I, I keep getting this backwards. I, th- I think she said she was wearing a white shirt and brown shorts. And then she told Alan that they're, you know, they're still in Eva's apartment. That's where she changed. And then Alan goes to Eva's apartment and goes to the dirty clothes 
And presumably they would be Jennifer's dirty clothes. I doubt she's throwing them in the same pile as Eva's and finds the white shirt, but, but white shorts. And then he puts, that's when he puts the Jennifer. Well, she changed her mind and says maybe it was white shorts she was wearing at the time. But the shirt, you know, we had a big discussion about the shirt, right? That, that she said she was wearing a white shirt and they find the white shirt, uh, in Eva's apartment. So I don't think, so I guess to shorten this, I don't think that no, I don't think she went to her mom's to change clothes. I don't know where she was coming from, but it does appear at some point she left the area. My guess would be, because remember, we're talking, this this was going on for hours and hours and hours. So it's not like we're looking at an acute period, of, you know, it's a five-minute period of time where the, the murder happens, it's over, they come, she's with Eva, she talks to the police. We're talking about hours. So my assumption would be that at some point during all of that, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps after. So if, if say, she did hop that fence while Keith was in there to take a peek at what's going on inside. You know, if she she had done that, and then she comes comes back over the fence, and all this, you know, police and all these people are arriving. Remember, you got Katie and youngster coming out, talking to Nina and Cena, and then walking towards the front. She might have just—I mean, it could be something as simple as she just, you know, went to go see where they were at, and then came back to the area. And that's another thing that's you know, it's you know, take you know, take it with a grain of salt. But you know, one of the things that I'm looking at is the descriptions of Jennifer through all of these different witness statements. Everyone. Everyone describes her as very nonchalant and not upset. To me, that I really have a hard time reconciling that with someone who just took part in or even witnessed a murder. You know, she's just wandering around. She comes back around the corner. Everybody says she seemed calm. She seemed fine. She wasn't upset. Eva was the one that was freaking out and was upset. But Jennifer never was. So, like, you know, like, so that's one of the things, again, it's not evidence, but I have always in my mind is, God, if Jennifer was involved with this, then she's got to be like a complete, like had to have hidden from everyone the fact that she's a complete sociopath and just was not even affected by the fact that this poor woman was murdered right in front of her. In one of the statements, either Katie or Youngsters, I can't remember who it was now, they do mention at some point that the three of them went to Janet Dorsey's. In in one of the statements, I know it changed a couple of times. One time it was right. Katie and Youngster, but in one of the statements, they do say that all three of them go to Janet Dorsey's to use the phone to call their homeboy to tell them that they thought someone was going to get murdered or somebody got murdered. So, I mean, they could be coming back from Janet Dorsey's there as well. Yeah. So you have, I think, I think it was youngster said that he and KD went to use Janet's phone. And then I think KD said, I think it was KD said that all three of them went up to Janet's and talked to Janet. And then Janet went back to the, you know, they, they don't line up right. But yeah, in one of those versions, Jennifer went to Janet's with KD and youngster. And it wouldn't be in Jennifer's statement because they're only asking what happened in the in the moments like before the murder, as as the murder was happening. They didn't ask her. So what did you do a half hour after that? Oh, after then I went up to Janet's house and did this. None of that stuff's in there. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Erica says, I was going back over Youngster's statement to police taken by Sergeant Smith and had a couple thoughts that I don't remember being discussed. Sorry if they were. Youngster mentions that when he and Katie returned to Eva's apartment the evening before the murder, Eva told them to leave because her, quote, baby daddy was dropping off her daughter. Do we know if that was actually true? 
I also find it odd that Katie and Youngster then stayed at the apartment that night. I would think Eva would have noticed if they had left or not, unless she was out of the apartment at some point after that. My second thought was that if Youngster said he remembers Jen wearing a, quote, really long black t-shirt the next morning, I know we think that info may have been fed, but do we have any evidence that Sergeant Smith knew that Jen was supposed to be wearing a black shirt? So the, the first thing that Erica mentions, the, the whole baby daddy situation, I don't know. I, I think Eve even says in her statement that she told Katie and Youngster that that uh, her daughter was getting dropped off because she was trying to get rid of them. So, so I don't think, I don't know if she ever says that that was actually going to happen or if she was just saying that to get rid of them. We know from Katie and Youngster's statements, they say that, you know, they told her that they're waiting on a ride to pick them up. And so, you know, my guess would be if that part's true, that Eva just fell asleep. I mean, it's, it's one o'clock in the morning. She's on the couch. Jennifer's already asleep in the bedroom. She's asleep. And she tells them they got to get out of here. And they tell her, Oh, we're just waiting on a ride. They go back to the back, back bedroom. And it is, if that part's true, my guess would be that Eva just fell asleep at that point. But I don't know if her, if her, if someone was, was actually supposed to be bringing her daughter at some point that day. I don't think that anybody ever did bring her daughter. So. So we'll see. As far as the the second part of it, the the really long black t shirt. No, I, I mean I don't I don't know. We don't I don't know what to think about Boyd Smith. I mean he seems to be at least when he interviewed Jennifer on the so so he, we see him. He did Jennifer's first interview when he wasn't at the scene. He was just at the station, and and then Jennifer goes. So he takes her statement. Really having he obviously was brief, but doesn't know a lot about the crime scene at that point. But then. Once he interviews uh, Youngster the next day, it's a different story because if you look at Alan's report, Alan has a discussion with Boyd Smith prior. I think it's Alan Swainson and Smith all have a discussion that night in Alan and Detective Allen writes, but this is when he noted that there were discrepancies between the statements and all this stuff. So, so Boyd Smith would have been privy to more information that next, uh, the next day. Uh, when, when, uh, when youngster Katie came in for their interviews. And it also seems like Swainson's kind of bouncing around there. If you notice, like he comes in and he's, uh, you know, he comes in with Katie and youngster. I think he's doing Katie's interview. Uh, Detective Allen had youngster and has Boyd Smith do his interview. But then we have, you know, Swainson is also like sitting at every time, like, like Jennifer's mom is calling. It's Swainson that's answering and Swainson's sitting there with Jen. So I, I, I don't know where he was at through all of this. Honestly, like to me, like Swainson is the character that we need to dig deeper into, and we're going to in next week's episode. Because you know, at, at first it seemed like Alan was, and I do think Alan is shady, just because it, their Jennifer's confession is obviously, you know, whether she's innocent or guilty, it was coerced, and it's a false confession. It's not what actually happened, uh, and the information only could have come from him. But then, you know, when you really look at it, also Swainson was sitting right there for that. So I don't know what part all he played in it. But when you look at the rest of the case file, it seems like Swainson is the one that are that is that is manipulating facts to try to make things fit his narrative. Katie says, I would be interested in kind of a summary of where we're at. Has anything over the last couple of weeks made you doubt Jennifer's innocence? And if you think the case has enough left to keep going, be safe traveling. Yeah, well, the answer is yes. There's something that's made me doubt her innocence, but it's not like I think that she's guilty, but it's certainly. And, and that's simply the timeline, the, the new information we have with the EMS report. And I, and I, I would say that I have to say that, yes, it made me doubt her innocence only because when we were dealing with a 915 time of death, 
at that point, it was very clear that this, that she could not have done this. There is absolutely not enough time for her to do this, which almost, you know, all but completely rules her out. Now that we've moved that time back to time of death happens somewhere closer to 10 o'clock and they have a much wider window of opportunity, then I can't, I can no longer say that Jennifer couldn't have done this. There's a ton of other evidence and a ton of other reasons why I believe that she is innocent, but I can no longer say that she couldn't have because we have a much wider window of opportunity now. Our last question comes from Danny. If June Sage saw someone other than Jen, where do you think Jen was at the time? Also, does that mean that June didn't see Jen knocking with Housen and Red Rock a few minutes later? Yeah, so this is, uh, we dig very deep. This is like the first half of my conversation that you're going to hear on Sunday with Chris on the, the, the episode 21 that's coming. But yeah, so if June didn't see Jen, if it was a different group of people, then that would mean, in my opinion, that where Jen was at would have been still at Janet Dorsey's when that happened or on her way back to the apartment somewhere around there. But she would have been, you know, somewhere between Janet Dorsey's and Eva's apartment if that was a different group of people. And if that would mean that then June didn't see Jen knocking on Catalina's door afterwards. Yeah, that would mean it, which wouldn't surprise. I mean, if you look at what June says she saw, she only was notified to the, that there was anything going on at all because someone knocked on her door. That's why she came out. And then she sees the, the girl at the door. She sees the black males come into the area. The black males leave the area. And then at that point, she just, she doesn't say that the young girl left the area. The young girl is there still at Catalina's door, presumably. And June just says, she kind of gives up on it. And she's like, okay, well, I'm done now. And she stops looking through the people. But yeah, I think that if then Jennifer came, you know, a few minutes later and started knocking on the door on Catalina's door, not on June's door, I don't think that would have had her got up because when she went to sit down, the girl was still, there was still a girl at Catalina's door. When she went to sit down. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that she would have had to have seen that if nobody knocked on her door specifically. And also keep in mind, you know, she also doesn't say that she heard the police coming and all the other commotion that she came out. She only came out when someone knocked on her door specifically. But as I said, we're going to get further into that this week with uh, on, on Sunday's episodes. So make sure you check that out. Got a lot of stuff going on uh, for you. If you haven't already, I, on True Crime Bins this week, I interviewed Laura Nyrider. It's very relevant to this case. If you don't know who she is, you probably, if you watch Making a Murderer, you would have seen her. She's been Brendan Dassey's attorney for over a decade now. Uh, she specializes in false confessions. Uh, and she's got a podcast called with Jason Flom on his network called Wrongful Conviction False Confessions. And that's her specialty, particularly with juveniles. Uh, we talk a little bit about Jennifer's case in there. And she also just did some awesome work where she helped push through some new legislation that would help a lot of people, would help Jennifer, I think, too. Where that, that makes it illegal for police to lie. You know, the Supreme Court allows police to lie during an interrogation. Well, she's helped push through legislation now that says that they cannot lie to a juvenile during interrogation. So super interesting. Uh, if you're into wrongful convictions, you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't. And, and, and interesting information about false confessions. Definitely check out the Laura Nyrider episode. And again, uh, I will be going back. I watched the first few minutes of the live stream, but I'm going to be going back now to watch the, the whole thing. Um, check out the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals YouTube channel to see how the oral arguments went with uh, Sandy Melgar. And with that being said, I've got some people to track down and hopefully do some interviews. And make sure you check out Sunday's episode with the second part of my conversation with Chris Dolan. 
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. 